Well, thank you all for coming. It's, uh, it, it's, I wanted to do something this month uh, in 1980, uh, 1990, President Bush signed into law a joint resolution designating the month of November as first, the first uh, national Native American Heritage Month. And of course, my attitude toward that is a lot like the Black Heritage Month in February, and that is we'll, we'll put up with it, and, and I wanted to do something to honor uh, the Blackfeet during that this month, but frankly, every month of the year is African American history and Native American history and so on, because they ought to be embedded in Montana history and American history. But when Michelle and I returned to Montana just over two decades ago, full time, I looked at what was had been written about Montana history and I'd kept up with it over the years. I went to the university before I went in for a long Navy career and so on. And I, you know, I knew the, the uh, Cover Kings were well covered, and Charlie Russell, and this was 2000, 2001, so it was right before the bicentennial for Lewis and Clark, and there was all sorts of, you know, the new Interpreter Center and all sorts of things going on. And so I looked at what had been most neglected in Montana history, and both in the formal history books, but also in the things coming out each year, and it was very clear to me at that point, and this is 20 years ago, that women's history was pretty neglected. Fortunately, it really took off in the 2000, 2010 era, and I think uh, has made up a lot of ground there. But also, ethnic history was, uh, <coughs> it was, it was bad. Uh, and, you know, the excuses were things like, well, there were so few, and this is talking about the black residents of Great Falls. There were so few, and yeah, but think of the stories. I mean, the Ozark Club story was kind of the first thing that that I uncovered, and with Phil Auberg and Chris Morris, who then had the History Museum, uh, those nights at the Ozark that we had in 2007, 8, and 9 were just something else. And there were, you know, other stories. Uh, even though the population wasn't huge, it was, it was left out. And so in my books, both the Civil War series and World War I commemoration para books, and really all of my books, I've made it a point to not overstate the amount of coverage, but to include for instance, World War I, uh, there were dozens and dozens of, uh, of Native Americans that served, and there were Chinese that served, and so on. So I name them, I, I give them some identity, and I tell some stories about them. And that's what I think uh, will help make up the, the gap. And so when I did the historic tales of Fort Benton, it was a well, first of all, it was a labor of love because I've worked for those 22 years now in the research center in Fort Benton as a historian there. So I, I knew the history and the uh, 
and the tales, the, the big problem I had was I needed a encyclopedic format book with 2,000 pages to do justice to it. How do you possibly take that 175 years of Fort Benton history, and it's more than Fort Benton history, it's northern Montana, and it's, it's the prairie provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan. We're all one region, and we settled together, we, we traded together, and of course the Native Americans were here, and they were an integral part from the beginning. So I, uh, <clears throat> I sort of carefully balanced what I chose I did want to do some new original research because things like the vigilantes in Fort Benton and the role that the ex-Beadler, that marshal that had been famous for his activities down in Bannock and Virginia City in the, in the real Montana vigilante period of the early 60s had been pretty amazing, but he'd spent years and years up in northern Montana, centered at Fort Benton, roaming the length of the Missouri River up into hoop-up country and so on, and nobody had ever written about it. Same thing really with Louis Riel, except that wonderful book, Strange Empire, that Joseph Kinsey Howard did way back in the, in the 50s. Uh, Louis Riel had been left out, and, and yeah, he was, I mean, his fame comes from leading rebellions in Canada and being hanged in Canada and now being resurrected as a national hero in Canada. But he spent years in Montana, northern Montana, with Fort Benton as kind of the center of his activities. And he taught at St. Peter's Mission. In fact, that's where the group came to recruit him to go back to Canada to lead that ill-fated 1880s rebellion. So anyway, I, I included those and I've given talks around Great Falls on, on several of them. I also wanted to include a couple of women. Uh, Thomas Francis Moore, everybody hears a lot about the acting governor and, and that colorful character that as a, as a very young guy, helped lead a rebellion in Ireland and was condemned to death and then commuted and, and banished in, after the commutation, um, banished to Australia and escaped and came to New York and led a, the Irish Brigade in the Civil War, Civil War hero, and came to Montana Territory. I mean, he cut a wide swath here. Um, very eloquent speaker and uh, leader of the Irish in Montana. So uh, he's had a huge amount of coverage, but nobody paid any attention to poor Elizabeth, his wife, what she had to put up with. One, uh, I didn't write so much about what she did while he was alive, but after his, his mysterious death, uh, she had to make her way back to uh, her home in New York, and, and that trip from Virginia City to Fort Benton, then on a steamboat from Fort Benton on, was just a terrible, terrible trip. And so I put it together as one of the tales. But tonight we're going to talk about what I think is probably the, the most prominent and 
most important of the Blackfoot leaders during the era of white settlement and, uh, and, and the beginning of conflict between the Blackfoot and white settlers and so on. This, this chief little dog, who was a relative of Natawista Culbertson, Alexander Culbertson's wife, so he was always welcome at the trading post in Fort Benton as a relative of Natawista and a leader in, of the Blackfoot. Um, and, and he played such an important role, not only in trying to keep peace between the Blackfoot and whites, but also between the Blackfoot and Crow and, and Assiniboine and the other tribes. There, there was constant uh, horse uh, capturing and uh, trading <laughs> and things like that going on, and he was trying to, uh, to keep that all under control. But also, and, and hugely important for 20 years or so, he was the primary one that kept the Blackfoot trade coming to that Fort Benton trading post, the American Fur Company, instead of staying up in Canada for the, with the uh, Hudson Bay Company. And he was important in the treaty. The, there were two different treaties that were negotiated during this period, the 1855 Lame Treaty that originally was supposed to happen in Fort Benton, but because the gifts to the natives and uh, supplies and, and part of the Peace Commission didn't make it up the river until, this was before steamboats, until late they went down the river to the mouth of the Judith, uh, Judith River around uh, Council Island and held that treaty. And then 10, ten years later, Marr, governor, then as acting governor, uh, held a peace uh, treaty negotiation in Fort Benton, the 1865 treaty. But let's dig into him a little bit. Uh, right after I tell you one thing, I, I mentioned to a number of the groups uh, some, some really amazing words that a, that a very prominent American historian, Hiram Chittenden, had said about Fort Benton. And, Basically, it was there's more romance, tragedy, and vigorous life than many a city a hundred times its size and ten times its age. Now that's really something coming from at that time, and that was around 1900 when he spoke those words or wrote those words. Uh, he was the foremost fur trade historian, the foremost uh, historian of steamboating on the Upper Missouri and so on, and he, and he remains highly respected. But much more recently, a friend of mine uh, who, like so many of our friends with the daily newspapers in Montana, in this case it was Kim Brigham with the Missoulian before they encouraged him to retire, <laughs> he wrote a, a great article about Fort Benton that was called The River Is Fort Benton, and his, in his article, he wrote, you can't eat history any more than you can feast on the curve of the Missouri River bluffs changing by the hour in the prairie lights. But if any town can sustain itself on the past, it's Fort Benton. History is a resource here. 
There is many buildings dedicated to preserving and interpreting the past as there are bars. A startling fact for a town that once boasted to have the bloodiest block in the West. So I, uh, on to, uh, to Chief Little Dog. Let me read a little bit from the book and then I will tell you about a bonus you get with the book and that is uh, because my publisher doesn't publish 400 or 500 page books, we always have a, you know, a word limit. Well, I defeated the word limit because there's about uh, 200 and just over 200 pages in this. Well, there's over 200 pages online that I steer you to through footnotes with much amplification, and I'll give you an example of that in the case of Little Dog, but with several of the stories. So anyway, the Blackfoot Nation, after a deadly conflict with Meriwether Lewis in 1806, regarded whites with hostility as early trappers found. In 1830 at Fort Union, Kenneth McKenzie made in effect a peace treaty that permitted the American Fur Company to establish a trading post on the Upper Missouri River in Blackfoot country for their mutual benefit. That truce extended only to the employees of the successful trading posts, first at Fort Pagan in 1831, then McKenzie, then Fort Lewis, and finally Fort Benton, four different locations. Independent trappers remained fair game and the Blackfoot raided far and wide. Among the most powerful warriors was Little Dog of the Pagan, who respected the peace with the American Fur Company, but about 1845 led a party that wiped out a, a migrant train near Fort Hall on the Oregon Trail. And you know, this is just a perfect example of how wide ranging the Blackfoot were even though they were centered dominantly really just across the 49th parallel, we call it the medicine line, but, and, and then of course the southern Pagan in, in, Mon in what became Montana. They were all the way down on the Oregon Trail raiding a, a migrant train. Taken in the raid was a chest of what the Pagans thought were brass buttons without holes. Little Dog cached the box under rocks, later to learn that the buttons were gold pieces, yet he never returned for them, even though he apparently remembered where, but he never gave the location away. Greatly impressed by the daunting numbers of whites moving west, Little Dog concluded early that the best course was friendship. Thereafter, whites had no better friend he was one of the first signatories in the 1855 Lame Bull Treaty at the mouth of the Judith and the first to sign the 1865 treaty in Fort Benton. A relative of Natawista Sixina, that's Natawista Culbertson, and a friend of Alexander Culbertson's, Little Dog was a frequent visitor to Fort Benton and a trusted friend, not only of the Culbertson's, but the later post traders Andrew Dawson, Matthew Carroll, George Steele, Johnny Healy, A.B. Hamilton, and so on. Another trader, Bill Hamilton, was once credited Little Dog and his son Fringe 
with saving the lives of his party. Chief Little Dog agreed to the peaceful transit of the Mullen military wagon train or wagon road expedition through Blackfoot countries in 1860, and he aided Agent Alfred Vaughn in establishing the Blackfoot Experimental Farm north of Sun River Crossing. I was out there today. It's If you cross the Sun River on the north side, there's the little White House that Emma Toman used to have. Uh, Lee Janetsky has it now. And uh, very, very close to that was that government farm. Little Dog saved many white lives during the Sun River Stampede in 1865-66. Importantly, he repeatedly interceded to alleviate the growing tensions between settlers and freighters and the Blackfoot during the 1860s. Irish adventurer Johnny Healy founded Fort Hoopup and was a Shoto County Sheriff. Like so many others, he did all kinds of things. In fact, at that very site, Little White House, Emma Toman, first was John Healy's trading post in the mid-1860s. He, he had a trading post with the Blackfoot there. Healy related the following story of the remarkable courage of his friend, Chief Little Dog. And, and we have the benefit, this is Healy, writing in the 1870s about things that happened in both the 1860s and 70s. And fortunately, Healy, he wrote well, but he also wrote good history. And that was the first thing I checked out because he left uh, a series of 50 frontier sketches in what was the first newspaper in northern Montana, the Benton Record. It began Finally, we had a newspaper in 1875. Uh, sure wish there'd been one in the 1860s to report on things going on in Fort Benton, but there wasn't. So Benton Records started and Healy was part owner and he was kind of their business manager and he wrote a whole series of stories, 50 uh, frontier sketches. And the first thing I checked out was the uh, historical accuracy and he'd have like a, a three-page story on something that you might find a sentence or maybe even a paragraph in one of the early history books like Leeson's History that came out in the 1880s. And, and, and I found his, I mean, the only thing that he greatly exaggerated was they never missed a shot and just a few things like that. But the, the, the great thing about Healy's writings was in fact, in fact, he wrote it up front, and that is that history is going to remember the big guys, but he was writing about guys like him that were doing all these escapades during the 1860s and 70s. So he named names. So if, if there were a dozen uh, white guys involved, he'd probably have the names of 10 of them. And you can't find you know, that valuable source material. So Healy is a kind of a hero of mine for what he left in writing. Little Dog had a son, Fringe, who was the father's counterpart in personal appearance and possessed the reckless courage and remarkable intelligence of his parent. It is said, and I have personal knowledge of more than one instance in proof of the assertion, that these two men 
were in deadly encounter more than a match for 10 of the best warriors of the tribe. And such was the confidence felt in their skill and prowess that a war party under their command would follow them into the very jaws of death. It was, I will relate one instance to show the sort of stuff these two Indians were made of. A war party of Pagans consisting of 20 well-armed and mounted men had encountered an, an, an Assiniboine party. The latter had taken shelter in an Indian war house, a structure built of logs affording a strong and safe defense in their in, inside. After fighting all day, the Pagans were unable to take the fortification and would probably have withdrawn from the contest after the sunset. But toward evening, Little Dog and his son, attracted by the firing, came up and learning the, the war house was defended by only six men. They laughed at the, the fellow Pagan, calling them cowards and squaws and without a moment's hesitation, dashed up to the fort in the face of a deadly fire from within, leaped over the logs, killed four of the defenders, and dragged the remaining two out of the fort and turned them over to the uh, party. Now let's move over to, so there's a footnote for this. Um, in the book, and it's uh, footnote 36, and it says, see www.kenrobisonhistory.com slant Fort Benton Tales for more articles on Little Dog, and well, I'll, I'll read a couple of them. So these stories are not in the book, they're online. Didn't have space to include them in here. I wish I had, but next best thing is to make them available this way. During the summer of 1859-60 at Cantonment, Jordan, in western Montana near today's Deborgia, as the wagon road building expedition of Lieutenant John Mullen worried about real and imagined obstacles standing in their way between Fort Walla Walla, Washington Territory, and Fort Benton, that 624 wagon road they were building, his intelligence Sources were telling him that the Blackfoot planned to raid the expedition once they entered Blackfoot country east of the Rocky Mountains. Mullen knew that he needed to establish direct contact with the Blackfoot, so he sent his interpreter, and oh, by the way, a very talented artist and uh, just amazing guy, Gustavo Sohon, to Fort Benton to summon the Blackfeet. And by mid-April, Sohon returned accompanied by a delegation led by their principal chief, Little Dog, who sought assurance of the true objects of Mullen's mission. According to one of Mullen's, mission, Mullen's men, John Strahan, who wrote, we are now in the Pecani or Blackfeet Indian country. We were informed by some of the Flathead Indians that the Blackfeet were, were opposed to their passing through their country. The chief was at once summoned and arrived several weeks after. 
with eight of his principal men. The chief, whose name is Little Dog, was well-dressed in black cloth and beaver hat. This suit he'd received as a present from an Indian agent. The rest of the party were decked out in all their finery, feathers, and flowing ribbons, ornamented leggings and sashes. Their feet were covered with moccasins, richly ornamented with beads and red cloth, and the usual working tobacco and pipe pouch. The latter is shaped like a lady's reticle and is generally prettily worked with beads. The simple bag does not, however, give sufficient scope for ornament, and usually it has several long tails to it, which are worked with silk of gaudy colors. The party were all mounted on fine horses, and the chief at their head had a fine American flag floating in the breeze as an emblem of peace. Lewis and Clark, when in that country, presented an American flag, calling it the flag of peace. Well, Lewis exchanged bullets with the Blackfeet, not the American flag, and that was their only contact, that incident on the Two Medicine River. After having a hearty shake of hands, a custom which all Indians through this country strictly adhere to, they dismounted, had supper, and in the evening a council took place. Most of the Indians spoke, and the chief made an able speech, which through three interpreters of different languages at last came to English. He was willing that we would pass through their country, but was opposed to the white killing their game. He was unwilling to go to war with the whites and kill them off as he was depending on them for guns, powder, paint, beads, and so on. Lieutenant Mullen told them his object, object in the country and in conclusion asked them if they would promise not to go with, uh, to war with any other tribe around them. He, Little Dog, was willing not to fight with any except the Snake or Shoshone. This chief was more intelligent looking, the most intelligent looking Indian I've seen. He presided over more Indians than any other chief in the territories, by some estimate at 20,000. After following us three days, they left. Then I've got a, an amplification. I mentioned earlier the help that, uh, that Chief Little Dog gave to the Indian agents in trying to promote the first farm in Montana, the uh, government experimental farm. So I have a description of the farm by the Indian agent Alfred Vaughn that I'll skip, but it's there in, in online. I'll just read some about that first Indian farm. In the late 50s, the government appropriated money and established what was known as the Blackfeet Farm upon the Sun River up the valley west of Great Falls. The farm flourished in the early 60s, and at one time 180 acres were under fence and cultivation. Proposals were made in 1860 that $10,000 be appropriated for the purchase of uh, cattle to be run in connection with the farm. These, however, were never acquired. Sub subsequent changes of Indian agents and reservation farmers and the hostile attitude of, of the younger Blackfoot 
resulted in the deterioration of the farm with theft of stock and implements and finally in an attack that burned the farm buildings and one of the caretakers being killed. After that, the farm was allowed to, to, to go back to sod. And then I've got a, a good bit more on, uh, on the operation of the farm that I will skip. Another thing I mentioned in just one phrase of a sentence was the immense help that uh, Chief Little Dog provided during a, a very tough winter of 1865-66. Unfortunately, word had gotten to Helena that gold existed in quantities along the Sun River. Well, that was never the case. But the word was out and the stampede began, and it was the middle of the winter. So during the winter of 1865-66, hundreds of miners stampeded to the Sun River Valley pursuing false reports of Placer gold strikes. Many of the stampeders rushed to the valley in warm early winter weather without adequate preparations for heavy winter clothing or provisions. The mild temperatures of early January dropped suddenly, a little bit like Charlie Russell with the last of the 5,000, that ferocious change of weather in Montana in midwinter. And it dropped suddenly. A furious blizzard dropped 20 inches of snow on the level. Sharp winds swept down from the north, sending temperatures plunging down to 40 degrees below zero. Some fortunate stampeders returned to Helena ahead of the blizzard, reporting scarce wood and water on the trail and predicted that many remaining miners would suffer severely from the cold weather. Many stampeders were scattered along the valley, far from the tiny settlement at Sun River Crossing. Robert Vaughn was told many years later by Mr. Thomas Moran, one of the stampeders, that at least 700 camped one night at a bend of the Missouri River near St. Peter's Mission. The next to the last location of St. Peter's Mission was very close to today's Ulm. That's before it went on to the final location where further west. So this, this big camp of hundreds uh, near St. Peter's Mission with the temperature registering 40 below. Other reports give no figures but mention a large number so encamped. <coughs> Hungry and suffering from the cold, these stranded men pulled into every protected place they could find along the road. Some reached Wolf Creek, others made campfires in the woods and huddled beside them. The fathers of St. Peter's Mission took care of, of as many as they possibly could. Father of Valley's medical skills saved both life and limb of a number of the uh, storm's victims. But the blizzard had curtailed the mission's supply of fresh meat. Ex-Beadler told Lieutenant Bradley that many of the snowbound prospectors were kept in food by 
chief little dog who was making daily hunting trips out in the area searching for antelope when no one else was able to stir outside protected areas. Let me conclude with uh, kind of the tragic end of, of Chief Little Dog. And this is, uh, I should mention also that uh, within the past year, it was last summer, a year ago, uh, we put uh, a new interpretive sign. Fort Benton has now 57 of these large interpretive signs, many of them along the, the levee trail that you can walk with stories of the buildings and the events and the people. Well, we put one, one side is in honor of Chief Little Dog and the other is a tribute to the Blackfoot Confederacy and it's right outside the uh, entrance, the main entrance to uh, old Fort Benton. So the tragic death of Chief Little Dog, certain members of Chief Little Dog's tribe developed a feeling of distrust toward him for his attempts to maintain friendship with the whites. On May 27, 1866, Chief Little Dog was ambushed and murdered by a small group of Pagan as he was returning to camp, camp down by the Teton and Marias River bottom there from uh, Fort Benton. <coughs> his son Fringe died with his father. Chief Little Dog and his son were buried uh, in the first cemetery in Fort Benton, which was west of the fort. So it's somewhere uh, on the western side of Fort Park, maybe spilling over into uh, the street, that street is Main Street, so uh, they very likely are still buried there because those uh, bodies of that first cemetery were not reinterred. Um, so the early burials from deaths at the fort and things like this, uh, I think, remain in place. The most exciting topic just at present, and this is writing about the time, is the murder of Chief Little Dog, the head chief of the Pagans, a great friend of the whites, and his son by a party of Indians of his own tribe. The following particulars we obtained from the principal interpreter of the tribe. It appears that several Pagans were in and about Fort Benton on the 27th, their camp being northeast of Benton down along the Teton. Having finished their business, they soon started for their wickiups in small parties. Little Dog himself left only a few minutes before his son, who was the last of the party. On the road to the Marias, the chief, who was on foot and accompanied by one of his wives, was overtaken by an Indian named Isidore, who was on horseback and reining up asked to see the old man's revolver, which was at once complied with by Little Dog without any suspicion of danger. On receiving the weapon, Isidore told, told the poor defenseless old man 
that as his party had whiskey in a little ravine a short distance ahead of them, and as they were afraid of their chief, he would, he, Isabel, Isidore, would keep the pistol. Little Dog remonstrated, remonstrations were unavailing. The Indian coolly riding off, followed by Little Dog, whose wife was more suspicious than her, than her lord, recommended a hasty retreat to Fort Benton. The old man acquiesced, but fatally for himself, said he would get his pistol first and then they'd go. So they followed the thief until he came up with the carousing party and demanded his weapon. They told him they had he had no need of it as they were going to kill him anyway. And without assigning any reason for doing so, they all fired upon him, killing him on the spot. Not satisfied with simple assassination, they mutilated the dead body in the most horrible manner uh, with butcher knives. The dead chief's son, hearing the, the firing and attributing it to some quarrel, ran up and on overtaking the wife was told that, that Little Dog had been killed. Being totally fearless of danger, the young warrior rushed up the, to the scene of the bloody event and asked, who killed my father? These words were his last for another volley from the party killed Fringe. And that was the end of, of Chief Little Dog, but uh, his memory lives on. So that's one of, uh, I think there's uh, 13 tales in the book, and uh, be uh, glad to answer questions. It's nice of KGPR, I'll mention. Uh, it's great KGPR listeners will be able to hear the talk this evening. So you all and the KGPR. And it's, uh, it's nice that we have a, a public radio that carries local programming like this, uh, music as well as talks on occasion and various events. So Eric, uh, thank, thank KGPR for me. Absolutely, thank you. Well, I've, I've been at the uh, Library and History Museum and uh, I gave a talk on uh, Elizabeth Moore here so I've kind of made the rounds, and I talked uh, a couple times in Fort Benton. But it's uh, it's the kind of thing where you know the the poor Tribune, with their lack of reporters, has relatively little room for history these days. But fortunately, we have weekly newspapers like the. Fort Benton River Press, which started in 1880 and has continuously operated since. It's the second longest running. Uh, the Madisonian is the oldest Montana Weekly 
it started in Virginia City and it moved over to Ennis, so it's been in two locations, but it's a few years older than, than the River Press. But, but those weeklies, the, Bethany DeBorda, the owner and editor of the River Press, loves to carry historical articles. And in fact, I'll have two during the Christmas season in the River Press. Uh, tonight, uh, the River Press comes out and it's a weekly that comes out on Wednesday. And tonight's story is going to be about uh, Teddy Roosevelt's ranch and hunting in, they say it's in the Dakota, Dakota territories now, it's North Dakota, but it was only 27 miles from the Montana border, his main ranch, which was Elkhorn Ranch. And it all began when he made a trip out in 1883 to, he wanted to shoot a buffalo. He knew the buffalo were disappearing and it was before he had any ability to do what he did later with Grinnell and the others that tried to save and preserve the buffalo. So he came out and uh, actually, um, he, he did shoot one. They had trouble finding any, but the one that he found was inside Montana uh, on uh, I've forgotten the name of the small creek, but it was a creek that ran across the border, and they they had they were in Montana when he shot the the bull uh, buffalo. And the the story that I've got is actually written by him, but then I give a background of his ranch and and his uh, time in both Dakota and Montana and about the buffalo hunt. But his story is the story of. Uh, one of the Christmases he spent at the Elkhorn Ranch, he was out looking for, uh, he and his foreman were out looking for meat because they'd been so busy with the cattle they hadn't had time to get anything lined up for Christmas dinner. So they went hunting for deer and they found a deer and in fact they shot two deer and took them back and typical Teddy Roosevelt ranch story. It's just delightful. So that's going to be in the River Press. And, and the one that'll be in the issue right before Christmas is the story that I had, I was looking for a good Christmas story. <clears throat> and I, I ran across the story of community Christmas trees. And I'd never known it before, but um, it wasn't until New York in, uh, I think it was 1901, early 1900s anyway, they put up a big Christmas tree in, I, I guess it was in Central Park, but in a, in a park and decorated it. And that was the first, quote, community Christmas tree around the cities in the U.S. and it took off as a fad after that. Um, Fort Benton in 1915 had their first community Christmas tree and they only did it two times because it turned out to be kind of a disaster but it was a great big tree that was standing. It, they hadn't had to cut it and bring it so it was beautiful. It was able to use an existing tree and they decorated it with all sorts of lights. 
and the weather turned so bad that so tough that they they could do a little bit, but they had a whole series of uh, you know choruses and different activities that were going to go on around the tree, and they had to hold most of those indoors. And so they didn't do it again for that was 1915, and I think it was 1925. It was about 10 years later they did it a second time. Well. I look down here, and I don't know when the tradition started in Great Falls, but certainly for many years we've had a community Christmas tree. That one this year is just especially well-formed. I mean, I've never seen a more perfect tree than we've got down here this year. So anyway, that story is going to be about community Christmas trees. Well, thank you all very much. A question. Pardon? Uh, a question perhaps it's facetious. Um, let's see, since the river press seems to be uh, up and running and thriving perhaps, uh, any possibility that they would uh, position a stringer recorder in Great Falls so we could... Uh, they would have what? Uh, a stringer recorder in Great Falls so that we could read about Great Falls <laughs> in the river press. You know, those David Murray and Grady Higgins, the two reporters for the Tribune. Uh, I wish I wish David could write an article every day because every one of his articles they're good articles. They just aren't often enough. And Grady, of course, covers covers local sports. And actually, I think Bethany has more reporters <laughs> than the Tribune in for her little weekly, and and uh, they really cover. All the things that General, fortunately, General with the electric and a few other things are taking up some of the slack. But it's it's really sad to to be missing a, a strong daily newspaper. And I I was feeling especially bad for Great Falls until the Lee newspapers started cutting back to where I think they're actually printing only three days a week. Uh, in in towns like uh, Missoula, so uh, I don't know, it, and and it's one thing to whether you print or have online, but if you don't have any reporters, you don't have any content regardless, and and if the Tribune's only going to be a miniature version of USA Today with ninety percent of the content, all of the sports except what Grady writes. And almost all of the Montana, well, there's almost no Montana news, except, except what they can get from both the Daily Montana, and I don't know if they use the other one. Uh, is it the Montana Free Press? I think those are two uh, pretty good, pretty active uh, online uh, Montana papers. But boy, it's hard to get Montana news. And it makes it all the more important to, to get as much on KGPR and the other uh, uh, public radio stations, not news, but, but events and things. Uh, Electron, uh, they've begun, and I hope people will start using that to find out when talks like this or concerts or all the other things that are uh, in the community. That, you know, people for years complained about nothing to do. Well, there was also always a lot to do, and and today there's 
an incredible amount to do if you can just find out about it. And there's no hot ticket. And boy, I miss that. Well, thank you. <laughs>